Psalm 50, verses 7 through 23. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me, to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Reading of God's word. Thank you. Let me just start out by saying that I, uh, we're going to cover the whole sort of realm, seven chapters about sacrifice this morning, and I offer my take on this to you with the, with the thought of please read for yourself, examine for yourself what the Bible says, test these words to see if they're true, because I'm covering a lot of ground, and I'm trying to make sense of something that for us seems so strange. I get it. I get that animal sacrifice in our context seems so icky and weird and why and confusing. And I'm gonna, I, I hope that there's some clarity as we enter, try to enter their world uh, back. This We're now looking at about the 1400s B.C., 1500s B.C. So we're, we're looking a while ago and... Uh, I'm sort of titling this, well, does God want sacrifices or not? Because we read what we read in the Psalms today, and it says, I don't want your sacrifices. And then we read something like Leviticus, and it says, I want your sacrifices. Is God of two minds in this? And so what I want to do is I I really feel, as last week, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen, not because it was necessarily a brilliant sermon, but because I tried to give a context for Leviticus in the Bible as a big picture. And so uh, we'll, we'll continue to do that a bit today because we can't take this verse by verse and expect to get out of it what we're supposed to get out of it. Because when you begin to get into uh, Leviticus chapter 1, 2, and 3, and it's saying sprinkle this much blood on this side of the altar, and you begin to atomize it down to there, 
Maybe we can draw some conclusions from that, but we need to see the big picture of this to glean what God wants to teach us out of this, okay? So let's, let's dive into this. I was listening to a podcast this week, and uh, I, I love this guy named Marty Solomon doing uh, the podcast is called Bema, and uh, it's kind of from a sort of from a Jewish perspective, but Christian looking at the whole Bible. And he was talking about Leviticus, and he said, Leviticus is the user's manual you find in the glove box of the tabernacle. And I liked that. I thought there was something in that. He says, I'm not really, a, you know, Bible is an instruction book kind of guy, but, but remember that Leviticus begins as the tabernacle is occupied. We have had out of the book of Exodus, chapter after chapter, with what the tabernacle is. The importance of the tabernacle can hardly be overstated. It is when God says, I'm going to come and dwell among you. I am going to live in the community with you and teach you how to be the community of God. We've got to get our, 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 our head around that. Because prior to that, God had given this people an identity through Abraham and stretching again through this time, hundreds of years in captivity in Egypt. And coming out of, they've been exposed to this uh, polytheistic Egyptian uh, time in, in for hundreds of years. And they are now released into the desert. And he says, okay. Let my people go. All right, here we are. What? How how do we do this now? And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you some instructions. Here's your constitution. Here's who you are as a people. And the law begins to come out. And then he says, and now build this tent. The tent, sometimes we need to get a picture in one sense of how plain this was. Here is a, a, a reconstruction of the the tent of meeting that was there. So out in the wilderness, this is in in Timnah, which is this just sort of area between Egypt and Sinai. Someone built to scale kind of what the tent looks like. This isn't a full complete picture because there's an area you can sort of see the fencing that's around it. But you know what? It looks like something Chuck Carnahan could probably put something like that together in a few days, you know? I mean, we look and somehow we think, of it being, I don't know what I think of the tabernacle being, but imagine just people like us just manning this and bringing animals into this court, and, and inside this is separate rooms, and the presence of God Almighty dwelling in this place, and people camping and milling around and doing commerce and trying to figure out how to cook and eat and, and you know, thousands of people milling around, and here in the center of it is God. And if you can imagine this, this area, this courtyard that's put around, God says, look, to teach you who I am, we have to start with the fact that I'm holy. They have no context to know what holy is. Think about it. They're told by Pharaoh that he's God. They're said, there's hundreds of gods in Egypt. They're told as they're scouting out the promised land, each tribe has its own God that they worship. So God says, I'm holy. What? How do we see that? What do we do with that? And, and they say, well, 
you have got to understand this basic characteristic of who I am, that I'm different, that I'm not just a, a person, or the gods of other nations weren't necessarily holy. They were, in many cases, horrible. They were supposed to be horrible because they were teaching things that that tribe and that group wanted to have taught. And so there may be dozens or hundreds of gods, some of whom are not holy at all. And so God says, I am the one true God and I'm holy. And I need to teach you how to be my holy people to reflect this. So everything in that area, that's fine, everything in that area is holy around me. But they have this problem. Because they do things and say things and they're not holy people. So God says, I need a ritual. I need something to begin so you know, do this. And this is a temporary measure so that your sin doesn't come into my holiness. Because what happens then is that you're destroyed. So I need a way to, to teach you how to temporarily get this sin dealt with so that we can be together. And the, the, the function of this is to be in relationship. But a holy God can't be in relationship with people who are unholy unless something is done to make, make the twain meet. Now, we hear the word ritual. Let me ask you, does your family have rituals? You better believe it, all right? One family, I won't say who it is in this church, all right? When their team, a bad call goes against them, there's a person with a colored flag, and they throw it at the TV when the refs have made a bad call against their team. That's a ritual. Our family has a ritual when we sit around at meals, and you may have this ritual too. We say, let's ask a blessing. You know, the Bible doesn't say you must pray before you eat in this way. We have our ritual. We usually hold hands. A ritual is something you do in a prescribed way that teaches or speaks of what you value, and it teaches and speaks of a larger truth. So we will sit around the table, and we're trying to teach a larger truth to ourselves and our children. We acknowledge God's given us the ability to provide for this food, that he, you know, he's ultimately the provider. I don't know what y'all do. Some of y'all have some weird rituals in your house, not around your prayer, but we do funny things. I, I won't even tell you some of the stuff. We go on vacation. There's certain things that if we don't do it, my kids say it wasn't a real vacation because we got to go to that ice cream spot or walk in that swash or do that stuff. That's what makes it, right? We've all got that. We're dealing with a ritual here that God prescribes very carefully. Seven chapters of Leviticus give us five sacrifices that are to be done in a very specific way. And if we read them verse by verse and try to look at, well, why that? Why do we, you know, if you're rich, you bring a bull, and if you're not rich, you bring a dove, and you buy this, and you do that. What? I don't know. He doesn't explain every reason why. They may have understood some of the reasoning, maybe not. But Moses is given very specific rituals to do. Let me just break down very quickly. We're not going to go into each one of these uh, deeply, but, but here they are. 
the burnt offering, chapter 1 is the burnt offering, and it's done twice a day, it's done morning and evening, basically to remind them that God is holy and they, the functionality are not holy. And an animal's life is taken for that. And there's specific ritual that they do. And again, there's, I'm sure there's symbolism in this that we miss and some that we can probably glean. But every morning, every evening, it's called an atonement. It means your sins are covered because of this. And there was daily reminders. And this was prior to Leviticus. They were doing, Noah did this, right? So this was not something that started with Leviticus. And other nations did this. So God often appropriates what we understand now to teach us, and he changes the meaning. This happens all the time. And sometimes the church is criticized. Well, what you're doing now is just, you know, a practice of something else. Well, God is a father and a teacher. We all take what our children understand now, and we sometimes shape the meaning around that. God takes baptism and, pa- and communion, and they were celebrating Passover prior to Jesus. And he says, now you're going to interpret it through me. John the Baptist says, we are going to now take baptism, which was a way for non-Jews to be, uh, decide to be cleansed and to enter in. And he says, I'm going to transform this to be a repentance looking for Messiah coming. So this is not something new. This happens all the time. Second offering, chapter 2, the grain or meal offering. No blood, no flesh. It's a thank you offering. It's a way to bring a part of your, uh, what you've uh, brought from your fields and you give part of it to God and you say, thank you so much for this. It's, it's a, a way to just say, God, you've been so generous with me. I want to be generous back. And then uh, people eat part of it. Some of this the priests would eat. And again, it's very prescribed. Some, of, some portions of the, of the food the priests would eat and some the people would eat. There's a, the third is a peace or well-being offering. Many of these offerings, again, we have to remember that they were free will offerings. You didn't have to do them. But when you sin, let me just, I, I, the context is so important. Now, when you sin, when you do something that you know is disobedient to God, we have the ability to stop right then and do something about it. We confess our sin. If we're faithful to confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was not the case then. He said, when you sin, you may bring an offering, and this is how I prescribe to you to deal with this. So when you just said, Lord, I'm so thankful. I just want to thank the Lord. Now we can sing and we can thank, and they could have as well, but they said, this is a way to thank God. Take a piece of this and do it in this way, bring an offering and give part of it to the priest, and this is how you do it. It's free will. It's voluntary. In the peace offering, the food is given back. Almost all the food is given back to the person who offered it. And and part of this was this wave offering, which just means, God, I acknowledge that this fantastic harvest of whatever was from you. And he says, thank you. The Lord would basically say, thank you for thanking me. Enjoy the meal. Fourth, sin offering. God wanted to make, to say, it's not just when you sin and intentionally, but when you unintentionally sin, sometimes we fall and we didn't even know it. 
or in our weakness, we fell. And so the sin offering, chapters 5 and part of 6, for unintentional sin and just for purifying yourself. And then finally, there's a guilt offering, which is also for unintentional sin or sometimes intentional. Again, each of these has specific subcategories. It's in some ways kind of complicated because it just depends. But when the guilt offering, when you sinned and you, let's say you unintentionally ripped somebody off, you, you, you took too much money and you, you know, you charge them something and then you realize later, oh man, I, I, I shouldn't have charged them so much. And so you sin against them, but it was unintentional. There's a way to make reparation and it's very specific. Give, give the money back and then give a little bit extra back to the person that you cheated unintentionally. And then if you did something and you fell. So there's all these things that God says, but the context of this, remember, is that God says, I want to live in your midst, and I am holy. So we've got to figure out how to get you remembering this and taking this seriously. Now, big point. There is a path we go down with sacrifices, and you will hear people say this, and it's easy to think this way, and we've got to stop thinking this way. Here's the path. The path starts with um, the way uh, the people of ancient times tended to look at sacrifice. And if you look at, if you, when you read even like Homer and some of the ancient Greek, it's all sacrifice is part of that world. And so here's the way they thought about it. There's this whole pantheon of gods, and they're typically very angry. And they show their anger by horrible storms and by disease and all these things. And so the gods are angry, and they're going to kill me. They're just, they are. They're going to kill me. And so maybe if I kill this animal and feed the gods, and uh, many of the uh, cultures of that time, particularly the Sumerian culture, which is what Abraham was out of, thought we are, we are feeding the gods. We actually leave them food. And maybe because they're, they're hungry, they're upset. And so they'll leave me alone if I feed them. So I'm appeasing the gods. And so we bring the food and we leave it before them. And uh, just maybe they won't kill me, but they're very capricious. They sometimes do and sometimes don't. You know, life is unpredictable. So they thought, maybe we can just appease the gods and it'll all work out. So it's, it's kind of barbaric in a sense. And what, the, what they felt the gods demanded, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 12 where the Lord is speaking right before they're about to go into Canaan and face some of these cultures. And, and God says, do not worship the Lord your God in the same way the tribes around you do. Deuteronomy 12, 30. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they are doing for their gods. They even burn up their children, their sons and daughters in fire to their gods. Don't do this. So you see, they're coming out of a culture where sacrifice is part of it. And it's, he's, he's saying, this is not right. Here's the road we go down. We can Old Testamentize what they were doing, and here's what I mean by that. We'll say like this, okay, God, you're holy and perfect. We're not, so you're super angry with me. And you're so angry, you're probably going to have to kill me because I'm so sinful. 
But I'll tell you what, I, I, I hear and I read you're merciful, so I'm going to bring this animal to you, and would you kill that, and that'll satisfy your anger and appease you, and I can sort of shrink back here. And then the horrible way we keep going down the road of that is we say, God, you're so angry, but Jesus came, and we New Testamentize the Old Testamentize. We say, you're so angry with me, and you hate everything about the sinful me, and so you're going to thank, thank God you killed Jesus instead of me, you know, me, and so now I can live in the good place instead of the bad place. It's a bad road to go down, but sometimes I think we think of how do we look at sacrifice? Here's what I want us, here's what I want us to think. I believe, and this is the part I want you to be sure to look at because, well, it's not necessarily original with me. I, I do think this, this is true, but I'm going to put it to you. The sacrifices are not ultimately about the sacrifices themselves apart from the change in heart attitude and the training it gives for us to be God's holy people. Let me say that again. The sacrifices are not ultimately about the sacrifices themselves, but about training us in our heart attitude and the corresponding behavior. Why do I say that? Let me read you, in addition to what we read together in Psalm 50, let me just read you a couple of many passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah 1, says, thus says the Lord, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and a fat of fed cattle. I don't take any pleasure in this blood of bulls and lambs or goats. Because when you come to appear before me, you're trampling my courts. You're bringing worthless offerings. Who requires it? Don't bring them any longer. Amos 5, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I don't even accept them. I won't even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take it away from me. All this noise, I won't even listen to the sound of your harps. Let justice roll down like waters. Let righteousness flow like a stream. Psalm 51, David, after sinning with Bathsheba, for you don't delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You won't be pleased with my burnt offerings. I know, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Hosea 6, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God is what I want rather than burnt offerings. I see riddled through the Old Testament this sense of, look, yes, this is the temporary provision for an unholy people to come into a holy God, but really what I'm doing is training you to have relationship with me. And this is why for us, it's now... We know we stand on the other side of the cross. And when we look at it now and we try to project back into that, it looks so foreign to us. But let me tell you a couple of things that I think are really helpful to glean. Leviticus 17.22 speaks of the life being in the blood. This is critical to understand. The life is in the blood. We can't think of it as like, well, we're sacrificing our pets because I don't think the ancient Israelites looked at these animals as pets. But if you don't think it was a gut punch for them to say, what I'm deserving is being taken upon this innocent life, I think we're fooling ourselves. I think there was a sense of the visceral nature of how serious sin is. 
And I think part of the reason we look at this strangely is because as a culture, we don't think sin's that bad. Yeah, we're all human. I'm only human, right? Yeah, we all, we all sin. What's true, we all sin and we're only human in one sense, but God says that's not the point. The point is, I am holy. And because I am holy, sin matters because that's the opposite. Sin breaks fellowship with God, and it breaks fellowship in the community. Sin wreaks havoc on you personally and on our relationships. Look at our world, guys. It's riddled with the effects of sin. Whether it's we can come down to our own families and we all see it, but we see the redemptive power Now, not of the blood of bulls and goats any longer, but of the one true redemption that can fix everything. And even more than a reminder of this sacrifice is that the animal is said to be a substitute. The word there, kofar, is cover. That this animal sacrificing its life is a covering. It takes what should have happened to to me, and it's put on him, and it should impact us. And that's why God says, I don't want your sacrifices just for the ritual. I want it so that your heart is broken over what sin costs, because it costs blood. It costs somebody's life. Because a holy, if there's no justice, if there's never any, I mean, there's no justice, then we know something's wrong with that. We just do. We, we inherently, if, if somebody does something wrong to you and, and, and you say, oh, well, no big deal, well, then it probably wasn't that big a deal. But if somebody does something super wrong, you, you know something should be done to bring justice about And God says sin makes something wrong if you want to be a holy people like I'm holy. And so provision out of God's love is made not to appease his wrath because his default position is anger, but so he can teach us how to be a holy people like he's a holy God. It's a painful process, this sacrifice, and that was the point. Sin leads to death. It's serious. We're going to complete this idea of ritual next week, and, and as we look at the corresponding, I talked about how Leviticus has these corresponding pieces, and the feasts correspond to this ritual part, and we're going to look at that and then move into the priesthood next week, but... Um, As we take communion, it's very appropriate for us to take communion this morning. Listen as we move into this as to how Jesus redeems this because he is the covering. He ultimately is, this is why we talk about him as the Lamb of God. But if we don't understand sacrifice, if we just want to breeze over the first seven chapters of Leviticus and all this, ugh. Don't like the Old Testament God, we, we lose something important. Listen from the epistle of John in the fourth chapter. This is how God showed his love to us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. My beloved children, since God has loved us in this way, we are also obligated to love one another. The sacrifices all point back to this, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and he laid down his life willingly. You didn't have to drag him and throw him into the court. He went on his own because he loved you so much and he didn't want you and me to pay the penalty that he said, I will bear the wrath. I will, I will take Upon myself, I will cover a multitude of sins so that every sin you've ever done and everyone you will ever do, if you're willing to come and to accept the sacrifice that's done on your behalf, it's covered. We'll explore a little bit more of that next week and as we go through. But because of this, he has made us a holy people, holy a, a nation of priests, Perfect in every way because of his great love for you.